In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. A few lectures ago we decided that we would take a little bit of a break from the normal series of theological lessons, the lessons that we were taking in the belief system of Islam. So we talked about the existence of God, the necessity for religion, the existence of God, the attributes of God. And the next topic that we wanted to talk about was going to be the divine justice. So the problem of evil in the world, and do we have free will or not, and those topics, there's three topics around that. But before we go into that topic, because we wanted to finish the discussion about God and his attributes with a comparison between that way of seeing the world, we call it a worldview, so a theistic worldview, a worldview where God is in the center. We compared it and we spent a little bit of time talking about the materialistic worldview, which is the other worldview, or the materialist worldview. And we spent a little bit of time talking about the main principles, the reasons why someone may not even want to accept really thinking about the arguments for the existence of God or the validity of religion. What are the main principles for adopting a materialist worldview? We talked about that. And because you guys showed a little bit of interest, we thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about basically some of the biggest questions and the biggest topics today in science. And the reason we're talking about these is not because we want to talk about science specifically. This is not supposed to be a, a gathering to talk about science. The reason we want to talk about them is a lot of people are taking these topics, this research, these hypotheses, these theses that are being the work that's being done in science and twisting them to show how, because of this research, because of these findings, because of these scientific theories, there is no God. Because of these scientific theories, religion is a waste of time, and so on and so forth. So we wanted to spend a little bit of time, we're not attacking these theories, we're not objecting to them, but we have to reframe them in a way that, if this is science, then keep it in science. And the moment you go out outside of science and you make this into more of a philosophy and religious discussion, then you're outside of science and we are therefore allowed to examine your claims, look at what you're saying and see if you're still talking only about science or not. And are you allowed to say this? So the first one that we talked about was the claim that there can be a universe that comes out of nothing. And so we looked at one book specifically about this, because in, the recent, in, re in recent years, this book actually became very famous. Uh, the author who wrote it became very famous. He was already very well known, but when he wrote his book, basically when that author wrote his book, that pushed that idea even more because he because he is a physicist himself he pushed the idea and it became even more popular that the universe can come out of nothing and when we went through the book and i think we read enough passages to show what he meant we saw that the claim is actually a lot bigger and a lot uh, seems a lot more solid than once we actually go through the details once we go through the details, we see that it's not actually a universe coming out of nothing. The nothing is there is space, and there are all the the laws of the universe have to already be in place. Including what we call quantum mechanics, all of that has to be in place for this type of universe to come out. Okay, so the the author was Lawrence Krauss. We talked about that. And because you guys expressed interest in continuing in this, we thought there's two more topics that we can talk about. One of them is whether, the beginning of life, that's one. And the other topic has to do with consciousness. 
these two, again, we're not drilling into the details of the scientific theories behind them. And if you guys are interested, we can do that. The point here is to show where science starts and stops and where some people are trying to push these scientific theories, the scientific thinking and experimentation outside the field of science and into philosophy and religion and where the mistakes are being made. So with regards to the origin of life, what's the issue? The issue, the big question and this is a very big question in science, has been forever and continues to be, is how did life first emerge? How did life first begin? This topic today in science is called abiogenesis. Okay? Abiogenesis. Which basically means beginning of life from non-life. And what this really means, concretely, realistically, is the question, the study, of how inanimate matter can become, can turn into matter with life in it, becomes animate, becomes alive. So for this specific field in science, we have to go back 3.54 billion years ago to those conditions on Earth to see what would have generated the kind of conditions that would have generated the first beings that have life in them. And the reason that they can't really do that today with the conditions of the world is that the earth was very, very different. So they have to come up with a way to hypothesize, study, and come up with suppositions, assumptions, and this is all based on pretty good science, on what life may have looked like at that time, based on what Earth looked like at that time. It was a completely different world, and we would not have been able to live in it. Okay? This question, oftentimes, one thing to keep in mind, is that this question is oftentimes linked to the theory of evolution. And we'll come back to that as a topic at the end of the discussion about the theory of evolution. This question is actually outside the theory of evolution. So anyone who wants to look at the theory of evolution, it, for the theory of evolution to work or even be discussed, you need life to be in place and for that life to evolve into something else. One species to evolve into another species or one species to evolve into subspecies and with time into other species. This is the gist of the theory of evolution. But the theory of evolution cannot come up with the answer of how life first emerged. Because you have nothing, you have no life, and then you have life. So this is a, a separate question. And that's why it became with time, it became its own field. Right now, it's a subfield in biology that researches this question. It's not evolution. It's not evolutionary biology. Once you have the first elements of life, and there's a huge disagreement on what those can be, then some of the mechanisms of evolution can be applied to those elements. Are we going to go into all the theories about... Can we go into the theories? No. There's at least 12 very big theories that we're not going to get into about the beginning of life now. Okay, if you guys are really interested, we can drill down into some of them. But I wasn't planning on going into the details of any of them. I was going to give you a gist, the idea on which most of them are built. And then a couple of them that go outside that thinking to see where the, the, the issue is, where the limit is. And maybe read a couple of passages from one or two of the books that I brought with me. So... Two of the principles that go in all of this, so that I don't repeat them too much, two of the principles today in the science that goes behind all of this. First of all, as we said, abiogenesis means that you are going from completely dead matter to matter that is alive. Matter with life in it. That's one. The second thing is, in most of these theories... And we're going to see why later. But in most of these theories, as we said, there's a good 
12 theories that are considered very respectable, the main theories in this. And the majority of them, the majority of scientists who work in this field, they say that this would have happened once. And there's a reason why. So keep those things in mind, we're going to get back to them. This is not something that happens all the time. It would have happened once. Why are we not getting into the details of the theories? Because to really do them justice, and I've spent a lot of time reading about these, to do them justice, we have to get into the chemistry and the biology of each one of these theories. And if I wanted to explain it myself or spend time, we could take clips, watch things, or that would mean a series of lectures just about this topic. So we're not doing that, but maybe if there's interest, we can do that one day. So for the time being, because not everybody, one, is interested in all the details, two, not everybody has studied the chemistry and biology that we need for this, and three, because there is a lot of information about all of this. So all I'm trying to do is to just give you a few things that you can take back and go and start your own research and studying in, in this field. So the idea that life came out of no life, non-life. Did it just begin now? No. There used to be a belief a long time ago, if you go back over 2,000 years ago, there used to be the idea that they used to refer to as spontaneous generation. And then later in you know the medieval times and afterwards, sometimes it was referred to as vitalism. Okay, It comes down to the same idea, generally speaking, which is that there's a possibility that there are things that are alive that emerge, come out of things that are dead. How does this work? They used to believe that there is something that is like, they refer to it as the vital force, the vital spirit, the life force. There's all sorts of theories. They all come down to the same thing. That is contained in everything that is alive. So when that thing dies... As it decays, that life force slowly leaves that alive body that is now dead and is going to concretize, to materialize, to crystallize into something else that is alive. So what are those other things that are alive? Fungi and mold. That's one thing. Maggots, flies, and mice. Big theories at that time, going all the way even Aristotle, wrote about this, or his students wrote that he said that, that those things, where do mice come from? Where do flies come from? Where do maggots come from? Where does mold come from? They used to believe that it comes from this vital force. It is generated spontaneously. The maggots are coming out of nothing. They're basically coming out of thin air based on the vital force, that energy that gives life to things is going into crystallizing, materializing into those types of beings. Okay? So this is kind of the lowest, simplest forms of life at that time, and this is how they saw it happen. Of course, you fast forward to the 1700s and later, there were scientists who started to really question this. And the biggest one who is credited with this, he's not the one who did all the work, others did work before him, but the one who was the most credited with having really destroyed this idea of spontaneous generation or vitalism is Louis Pasteur, who showed that these entities are unable to come into existence if you don't allow, let's say, the flies to lay their eggs, then you cannot have the maggots. If you completely seal the meat that is rotting, you cannot have flies Come be, or maggots come out of it. Okay, and he did a series of experiments and he showed and he wrote his work. He showed that there's no such thing as spontaneous generation. And he, they started showing him and other uh, scholars, they started showing that some of the things that people thought are invisible life forms and life spirits or whatever they refer to them, vital energies. In fact, there are even microbes or things that are carried by air that we're not seeing, but they're there. So the idea started coming in the 1700s and 1800s towards that. So the idea that things like maggots and 
mice and flies are emerging out of nothing, or things that are not alive, started to become kind of a joke in science. It became very laughable to speak this way. Obviously, all of these entities are emerging out of prior life. So you fast forward until after Louis Pasteur, with Antoine von Leeuwenhoek and others who came up with the microscope, they started looking at cells. The cell became the smallest entity that is known to be alive. So now life, the simplest form of life, was equated to the cell. That's the smallest entity alive. Today, that's still kind of the idea. Some scientists try to say that viruses are even simpler than cells, and so maybe we should look into viruses, but they're the exception, and generally speaking, viruses are not considered to be the smallest alive entities, because viruses are not alive by themselves. They need a host. They need to take over a subject that is already alive to do what they can do. Without a living entity to take over, a virus is nothing. It doesn't do anything. It's not alive. So they don't consider viruses as entities in themselves. Okay, so they don't study them for that. With time though, they started looking at the cells and they saw the cell is extremely complicated. Initially they thought it was a lot simpler. But the more they studied it, the more you cannot just get a cell. The cell is made up of a lot of very complex organelles, parts in the cell that, may, that each do its own thing. It looks like a whole city. Okay, the more you really drill down into it. So let's drill down into the cell. And when they did that, they saw that there is something that's basically based on what we understand from the way a cell works, making the cell work. Every aspect of the cell is controlled by that brain of the cell inside the nucleus, which has all the genetic material of the cell. So they drilled down in there, and they started looking at how those things are created the genetic material, the DNA, that is usually made up of the nucleotides, it's made up of peptides, it's made up of very big molecules. When they come together in a certain way, they form the genetic material of that cell. So that became the new area where they have to concentrate their efforts to see if anything would have come up first to lead into a living entity, it must be inside the nucleus. It has to be the genetic material. The problem is that the genetic material itself is too complex. It cannot just happen by itself. And I think we spoke about it in one of the, the gatherings enough to understand in a little bit its complexity. So they zoned in on some of the parts of it. The genetic material, as we know it today, the one that is common to the complex living organisms is DNA. It's made up of two strands that look like a ladder, and they're connected, right? It really looks like a ladder, and it's spinning, right? This is the DNA chain. That chain, if you split it in two, it looks very similar to something else that exists in nature, and it's there in the cells, and it's there in other organisms as its genetic material. It's not our genetic material. It's as though the DNA uses it, it's called the RNA. The RNA looks like a simpler form of the DNA. Some of the building blocks of both are the exact same ones. They're functional proteins that if put together become the nucleotides that form, they become the, the bricks that the DNA chains and RNA chains are built from. So now they found something that looks much simpler than the DNA, and it seems to be built from the same way, and we find it in simple organisms as the genetic material. So those very simple organisms don't have DNA. They only use RNA in their cells. So that became the strongest version of where life may have started from as we know it today. So that became the theory of the RNA world. So the world, at some point, had RNA at its, as its genetic material. When they, drill, when they look at RNA, again, RNA is too complex. 
But now we're working with RNA. The RNA itself is too complex. They go to be functional proteins. Those proteins are basically like a code, coded language that interacts with each other. A lot of scientists talk about information theory in the cell. They go down to the level of proteins and enzymes and peptides and how basically every part of the cell has to be able to read the protein and do something with it based on what it is, okay? But these are the material, the main building blocks. We're talking about the parts that form the parts that form the, the cell. Now the work that is being done in science, for the majority, when they concentrate on abiogenesis, they're trying to see, is it possible, if we put all the ingredients that make up a functional protein, if we put them all together, what is the likelihood that they form a functional protein? The ones that we need to become RNA and eventually DNA. Let's stop here for a second and then we continue. There is a huge problem going from RNA to DNA. The way I explained it, I made it very easy and simple. But that's the reason why some scholars, some scientists, they do not want to work with the RNA world theory because they say that there's too much difference between RNA and DNA. So one DNA cannot evolve from RNA. So they came up with different theories. They have to make the DNA work itself. They jump directly from the building blocks to DNA. They can't go building blocks, RNA, DNA. Okay? But let's put that aside and keep working with the most popular theories today, which is the RNA world becoming eventually DNA. If you look at those functional proteins, those bricks that are formed in a certain way, that they can become the building blocks for RNA. If you take all the ingredients that you need to create that functional protein, in that kind of world, so we said Earth was a very different place. It would have been impossible for us to breathe. There was no oxygen in the atmosphere, blah, blah, blah. Okay. If you put those conditions together, and you create conditions where all the ingredients are there, what's the likelihood that this functional protein comes together in the right way? All those ingredients are in the right ratio, combined in the right way, to become the functional protein required to build the RNA that will evolve into the DNA, that will create, eventually, the cell. Okay, we're not even talking about the cell yet. So let's take a second now, just to talk about probabilities, because we're going to talk about numbers that don't really make sense to us. So it's just to keep the order of magnitude in mind. I wrote three numbers down before coming. One of the numbers is the number of seconds, if the theory of the Big Bang's calculation is correct, and the universe is about 14 billion years old, then since the Big Bang, we would have had until now 10 to the power of 16 seconds that would have happened. Okay? So you understand 10 with 16 zeros after it. That's how many seconds have taken place since the Big Bang. So 10 to the power of 16. Okay, I don't know who studied what math here, so... Okay, the next number, if we want to calculate, if we want to calculate, okay, we talked about elementary particles, so I don't know if I need to explain it or not. Atoms are the smallest units that we, a lot of us know, make up all matter in the world. Atoms are made up of smaller particles. They're made up of electrons and neutrons and protons. Electrons and neutrons and protons are made up of other particles that are referred to as elementary particles, right? There are gravitons and muons and gluons and other... These are smaller particles. Okay, how many... There's an estimate of how much matter there is in the world 
based on elementary particles. There is 10 to the power of 80 elementary particles in the universe. So 10 with 80 zeros behind it. That's how many elementary particles are there. Okay? Another even bigger number. How many events would have happened in the universe since the Big Bang? Any event, any interaction that happens in the universe. There are a lot more interactions than seconds, right? Obviously. A lot of interactions are happening every second. There is 10 to the power of 139 events that would have happened until now in the universe. Okay, so that's 1 with 139 zero, 10 with 139 zeros behind it. Okay? I'm saying this just to give you an idea of the number I'm going to say next. So, I only gave these as examples, because these numbers don't really make sense to the human mind. So we have to use them as comparisons. Science today, when they calculated the probability that if you put all the ingredients together, the likelihood, the probability that those ingredients will come in the right way to form a functional protein, we're, no, we're not talking about the full chain of RNA. We're talking about one protein becoming the RNA that will eventually evolve in whatever way, shape, or form to become the DNA that will itself create what will become a cell is one, one in how many chances? 10 to the power of 164. We said there are 10 to the power of 139, 139 zeros behind the 10 events that have happened since the Big Bang. The probability that one functional protein comes together if you put all the ingredients together according to a number of books, because there's an, a few calculations done, the number ranges between 149, 10 to the power of 149, to 10 to the power of 164. That gives us an idea of how unlikely it is that that functional protein comes together in the right way. Does it mean that did it, did it happen? No. We're just saying that the probability is basically a very fat zero based on how human beings view the world. Okay? What does this mean? This means that today, scientists openly, when they come to the topic, if they're talking serious science, they're not talking about to lay people who don't understand science. If you read scientific books, scientists are very open about the Answer to the question, how did life start? They say, we do not know. They have theories. And that's why today I said the biggest, most popular theories, there are 12 of them. But I counted. There are more, but they're smaller. So a scientist here and a scientist there with a few followers doesn't count as really a popular theory. We're talking about the big theories of how they can't agree. There's a huge disagreement. So what I tried to present today was simply the main parts of the theories that the majority of scientists agree on. They agree that for that cell to become a cell, they have to work from the DNA. They have to get to the DNA. If they can't make the DNA work, they cannot make the cell work. Everything is contained in the DNA. But the DNA is too complex. So they have to work from something simpler. And the something simpler right now, the best theory they have, is the RNA. The RNA today in our cells, the RNA is used for other things. It's not used as genetic material in our cells, humans. Okay? But it's there. In some other beings, it is used as the genetic material. The RNA and the DNA both have very basic building blocks that are the same. So, this became a possibility to say, well, if we can show that those building blocks came together, then we have something in common that we can work from. 
The problem is that the likelihood that this would have happened is very, very, very low. And that's the biggest problem with explaining how life first emerged. Okay? Some of the theories, I thought those are worth mentioning. So some of them, they concentrate, they really want to skip, kind of like the Big Bang Theory, where they stop with right where the Big Bang happened, but they can't go beyond it. Some of these theories, they, they claim to be theories that talk about the origin of life. But the reality is not they're, they're not talking about the origin of life. They need life to be there, or something to be there, and they're doing something with it. There's, like, for instance, this book that I have, uh, John Archibald, 1 plus 1 equals 1. So in this theory, he's basically showing that the reason why cells today are the way they are is that at some point there were cells that came together, each carrying different genetic material, and some of them swallowed up others, and with time that evolved into the, the, the cells that we have today. Why do we have that? Because there are parts of our cells today, there's a lot of reasons, and without going in the, into the technical reasons, the, the more simple reason is that if you look at some parts of the cell, like the mitochondria, is one part of a cell, it's like an organ in our bodies, like, like looking at the liver or looking at the lungs, the mitochondria is very, very important. It's special and important in the cell. It's not the brain, it's not the nucleus, it does a lot of very important functions, and it behaves completely differently. It has its own brain, and it does its own thing in the cell. But somehow, it serves the cell fully, and the cell serves it fully. So, his theory is that the mitochondria used to be a thing by itself before, and the cell was a thing by itself before, and at some point, one of them swallowed the other, and that became a symbiotic relationship. Right? Where you have a host and you have two entities that feed off each other to continue to survive. Okay, but that doesn't really explain where both came from. It doesn't go all the way to... So those kinds of theories we have to be quick to dismiss that as the, although they may help us explain scientifically some of the evolutions that may have happened, those theories can't be really considered theories about the origin of life. Another one that is very popular that has to do with the origin of life. And again, I hope you see quickly that it's not really about the origin of life. When it looks at all of this that we presented, it sees how difficult, how complex, how improbable life would have arisen out of inanimate matter on Earth. They came up with another theory that has existed for millennia, but now they put a very scientific twist to it. It's called panspermia. The theory of panspermia, which is very popular now, is that life did not really start on Earth. Life came to Earth from the outside. And over the last 30 years, there's been a lot of research to show that when meteorites and asteroids and, and other things, debris and things that come from space land on Earth, they do contain some things like amino acids and proteins that look like they could have become the building blocks of life. So, the link, the importance of this theory is that they try to show that Earth is not that special because the probability, as we said, on Earth, if all the conditions are right, it's too low, it's too difficult. So, instead of trying to figure it out on Earth, they deflect it. They say, Life exists in the universe. It spread in the universe. And somehow, it landed here. As it may have landed a whole lot of other places that we may not know about yet. It's just here, the conditions were right for it to grow and evolve and become, let's say, human beings, given enough time. Okay? So that theory, again, I think is it's an important one. People should be aware of it. They should study it, but it's tricky because it doesn't really go to the origin of life itself. It's pushing back the question of the origin. It's saying, 
how life may have started on earth, but it's not saying how life may have started. There's something before that has to explain, but where is that coming from? So there might be an evolution, there might be a manipulation that happens on earth, but the question of how did it start, it deflects it or it pushes it back to, it came from outside space and we don't know that much more about it. Now, what else do we need to know? I had a couple of points here. Okay, so we talked about the genetic material being the main issue right now, the main area where a lot of the science is being done around the beginning of life. But for all of this, and all scientists agree on these elements, there's a few of them, I'm not going to mention all of them. One of them is that they have to make the cell work. At some point, for these theories to work, they have to reach the level of the complexity of a cell. Right now, all life as we know it, as the simplest form of it that we would need to make sense of everything else, is to make a single cell fully functional. Okay, so that includes, for instance, its ability to self-replicate. And these are important because today, biological life as we know it on Earth is resting on these principles. Life needs to be able to self-replicate. It needs to make copies of itself. So where does that come from? How do you explain that mechanism? So you may be able to put all the elements, all the ingredients together to form the building blocks, but where is that coming from? Where is that happening before? In the universe? Or where is the, where is the notion of self-replication coming from? The principle of self-replication. Where does it come from? Another one is self-assembly. It's as though it's automatic. It's not happening all the time. It happens in certain situations. So what draws certain ingredients and things together? Okay, until now, these are the questions that haven't been answered. Okay, that's one. That's second. Auto, uh, I'm not going to go into that one. And the cell membrane. The cell membrane is another very important question that needs to be resolved when we talk about abiogenesis. Because at some point, these ingredients that are coming together, they're not just floating around. They have to self-contain and say, this is me, this is my inside world, and then there's the outside world. And within this inside world, I perform all these internal functions that allow me to survive and then allow me to self-replicate and to have uh, inherited genetic material that goes down the path. Okay? All of that today is explained with the cell membrane. The moment you put that line around those ingredients, those functions, now you made it into an entity. It becomes one. One entity, one organism. That requires an explanation. Where did that come from? That line, the membrane of the cell. And I'm not going to get into the complexity of the membrane of the cell, and that requires lectures on its own. Okay, so that's one thing. Today, another thing, just I guess for your own interest, out of curiosity, this field, when it started out, it was really about biology. Today, it's a combination of a lot of fields. If you specialize in abiogenesis, you're probably a specialist or at least working with specialists, or you have a subdiscipline, subdisciplinary expertise in geology and paleontology. So you have to be able to dig very deep into the ground and analyze what's going on based on the chemicals you find, based on the constitution of the geology you find. That's one thing. You have to understand outer space. You have to understand astrophysics. You have to understand what happens to things that are in space, traveling at certain speeds, encountering radiation, going through Earth's atmosphere, and coming in on, on our planet. Okay? This is another field. And of course, you have your biology and chemistry and organic chemistry, biology, and all the rest of it. Okay. Another little point. A lot of the experiments that are being done today, 
They kind of remind us of what we encountered in the book of Universe from Nothing. While they claim to be completely replicating the conditions initially present on Earth, the issue is that this is supposed to happen randomly. The problem is that when you go into a lab and you recreate those conditions artificially, even if you are able to do it, which they haven't been, they've been able to do parts of things, but no one has been able to do the, the simple things that we talked about. The problem is when you put these together in this way, it weakens the argument a lot. The problem, though, is that I think we have to be very open-minded and accept the fact that no one, one knows exactly what the conditions were on Earth four billion years ago. And two, even if we know 100% what they were, it's going to be impossible to replicate them 100%. So because of that, the only way to do it is to do it in a lab with a lot of human intelligence and with a lot of computer modeling and with a lot of expertise coming together in a lot of fields to make those conditions work, to put, let's say, one functional protein together. When all of this is supposed to be happening randomly. That's why I said it's kind of similar to the universe out of nothing when the nothing is defined as really being something. So one of those experiments, I, I'm not going to talk too much about it, but one of these very famous experiments is the volcano in a bottle, for instance. If you want to look it up, that's a very famous experiment where they recreated some of those conditions that would have led to these ingredients coming together. <coughs> Okay. Yeah. So today, maybe one more thing to keep in mind. The very simple version of all of this that we talked about, Darwin wrote about it, talked about it. Today, it's a lot more sophisticated than that. So the question becomes, is it so sophisticated that we're not going back really fundamentally to what he's saying or not? So what he said... Because we said this is not theory of evolution, and he knew that, so he didn't talk about it, except that at some point he wrote about it, and that became very famous in science. He basically said, there's a very big if, but if there was a little warm pond, and all those ingredients that we need, the salts and the sulfurs and the minerals and the, all of those came together, and maybe the right lightning at the right time would have brought that life together. Okay, that's how Darwin talked about it. So today the science is not as simplistic as that, for sure. But the idea is kind of the same. So no one can just say, uh, you know, it's not as easy as saying it's Darwin's warm pond. But bottom line is the idea is the same. A lot of the work that's currently being done, for instance, is there are areas in the ocean that are volcanic in those areas, they're finding that the temperature would have been what is required. Because if you go inside the volcanoes, it might have been too hot. So you need something to put it warm, but not too warm to kill life once it exists. So now they're finding, in fact, some of them are in Quebec, in the ocean. If you, They've dug down and they're finding these uh, geothermal columns inside the ocean that are basically coming out of volcanic activity that would have happened or is happening right now under the crust so under the ground of the ocean okay that's where a lot of the research is being done now so it's not a, a warm little pond okay but the idea is kind of the same they're still looking for those perfect conditions because that gives them the best work to place to look at the geology and look at the conditions that would lead to the uh, emergence of life Okay, so we said at the beginning, and I said I'd come back to it, so I hope now it's clear why we said that it would have happened once. They say, first of all, it would have happened once because it's so damn complicated and complex. But two, it's because it doesn't need to happen more than once. If it happens once and it happens in the right way, it's going to exist and then it's going to evolve into everything else that we have today. 
And it didn't happen a lot because today when we look at everything that exists, we can explain it with something like, as you said, the theory of evolution. So you have what they call the tree of life. So if you look at the tree of life, you see that there are specific species and there are lines connecting those species and they go back to something or original. If this would have happened more than once, there's a probability, there's a possibility that we would have had multiple trees of life. It doesn't seem to all collide and combine and collapse into one thing at the end. Right? But right now, it looks like it's all always getting more complex. But if you drill down into it, you see that it was simpler and then simpler and then simpler, but there's common. There's always something common from which we can work. So it would have happened once and in a certain way. Okay, then I thought I would read, uh, I'll just take a couple of passages from this book. So this book is called A Brief History of Creation. Two guys wrote it, Bill Mesler and James Cleves. One of them is a journalist. I think he's the one who did a lot of the writing. It's very well written. And the other is Vice President of the International Society of the Study of the Origin of Life and Professor at the Earth Life Science Institute in Tokyo. Okay, what they did in this book is that they have, I think 12, but I may have mistaken. Okay, 13, sorry, 13 chapters. In every chapter, they looked at a point in time in the history of humanity to see what were the best scientific theories for the origin of life. And they go all the way from about more than 2,000 years ago all the way down to here. They present those theories in a very scientific way. It's called The Brief History of Creation. Okay, it's a very well-written book. I really recommend it. You very well-researched. It's a very solid scientific work. Anyways, so I thought I'd read just a couple of passages because I thought this book, there's a few books like this. They're really good. They're very objective. They actually tell you the state of the scientific field as it is today without any, uh, you know, jumping from science into religion and jumping from science into philosophy and jumping. It's actual science. And they say, this is what we know and this is what we don't know. And we're working on it. This is what we need to know if we're talking about science. So I thought I'd read a couple of passages. One of them is this one on, in the preface at the beginning of the book. They say there's something about the question of how life began that sets it apart from just about every other question science has ever tried to answer. Okay. It is not like asking how mountains form or what causes water to turn into, into steam. The question strikes at something deep in the very heart of human existence and at the meaning that may or may not lie behind that existence. It springs from that same intangible yearning that leads human beings to conceive of an all-powerful creator touching upon not only how we came to be, but why we came to be. It is, in a sense, the ultimate question. How did life begin? Okay, so this is something that we have to keep in mind. This is going to have ramifications. It has consequences. It means that when people are talking about this, they're going to get very passionate one way or another. They may get blinded one way or another. And that applies to all of us too. If I'm a believer, I'm not a believer, regardless. If I'm talking about these scientific topics, if I want to talk about them scientifically, I have to stick to the science and not start playing around with the science and make it non-science, start making it into philosophy or religion, as we encountered until now a lot. So passions may basically run very high. Um, yeah, to the point where basically the question is as important as is there a God to this world or not? The second part to this, and we talked a little bit about it last week, but I want to make sure it's clear. So let's say tomorrow science is able to come up with the explanation of how those ingredients all really came together and they formed that first functional protein and how that one formed the RNA and RNA formed DNA and all of that. Does that mean that we have no more need for a creator? Is that sufficient or not? So keep that in mind, and we'll, we can discuss it more. They're gonna, in my mind, they're going to answer the question in a, in a second in a couple of uh, passages. So this is a longer passage, but I thought I'd still uh, read it quickly. This is a story, so this book, they're talking about the book. This is a story of the appearance of life on Earth. 
but just as important it's the story of the evolution of how we see the appearance of life on earth. From the vantage point of the 21st century, it is tempting to see it as a story with clear, with a clear trajectory. Because people think that science is always moving from point A to B to C. We're learning and we are evolving and we're discovering and it's very progressive and very clear. It's not we make one step forward, one step backward. We find out that for the past 50 years, everything we've known was wrong. We have to go in another... That's how real science is, okay? So that's the point of reading this passage. First, there is darkness and ignorance. Gradually, this gives way to illumination and knowledge, marching onward in a straight line through Darwin's revelations and the workings of evolution, through the deciphering of the genetic code, and all the way to the unraveling of the cell's inner workings. So this is the basically the history that they're going to trace here, how science has led to what it has led to. Yet along the path, there were countless twists and turns. Ideas long discredited have found redemption. Science thought incontrovertible has been disproved. Much uh, more such twists will no doubt occur, for the mystery has not yet been solved. And this is an important passage. The mystery has not yet been solved. Okay. We still don't know how life began. No one was there to witness the event, and almost all of the geological record of that period has long since been erased by billions of years of constant geological change. So what we're working with is best hypotheses. We're working with assumptions. We're working with things that we come up with, and then we do calculations, and we build experiments and labs, and if it works, we say well, our conclusions were right, so this is a possible way of how it came to be. We can't say more than that. What we do know is that by at least three and a half billion years ago, a single cell living organism appeared on a sterile earth. We don't know for sure how it got there, but we can infer that it emerged from non-living matter. Okay, and this is why we said this whole field is now called abiogenesis. So you have the genesis of life from non-life, from abio. So bio is living, abio is non-living. So non-living, generating, living. An educated human being in the 18th century might have laughed at such a notion. Why? Because they had just discredited spontaneous generation. Yet, a person living in ancient Rome or ancient China or nearly anywhere else in the ancient world would have held beliefs that no strikingly different at their core from what we basically believe today. Meaning what? Meaning that they did believe, if you go back a lot further in history, you will see a lot of people believing that you can have what we refer to as spontaneous generation. And that's why I started with that. Today, if you say, if you call anything that we talked about spontaneous generation, people who are technical in this field will attack you and say you have understood nothing, this is not spontaneous generation, has nothing to do with spontaneous generation. Okay, and there are, if you go on YouTube, if you'll see a lot of scientists talking about this, making it very clear that these are two very different, uh, different areas, different claims, different theories. Let's see how this paragraph is going to end. So initially they were saying the ideas that we are considering normal science today, two centuries ago they would have been laughed at. But if you go a couple of, a thousand years ago, that's what everybody believed. Okay. A scientist in the 21st century would call the emergence of life from non-life abiogenesis. A literate Greek around the time of Christ would have called it spontaneous generation. But both understandings are, at root, quite similar. As much as it might surprise us today, throughout most of human history, people didn't think that the sudden appearance of life from non-life was all that miraculous. Okay? So this is, a, I think, an important passage to keep in mind. That's one. And the second one, they're not as long, so it should go quickly and we're almost done. Today, tens of millions of dollars are spent researching the problem of the origin of life at scores of eminent labs around the world. Every year, new results generate a great deal of excitement that scientists may finally be on the brink of solving the central mystery of biology. A never-ceasing drumbeat of stories appears in the press about every new idea. Often, these are given outside, outsized significance. So they're basically exaggerated. 
Even the notion of panspermia is routinely resurrected as an exciting and somehow new idea. So that's the idea that life came from outer space. We want to believe that science has a firm grip on the central problem of biology. The reality, though, is that it is very difficult to say how close we are to understanding the answer to this most vexing, yeah, frustrating of questions. Okay? That's another passage. Another one. Champions of experimentally derived knowledge can look at the same evidence and see something completely different. So he's saying people looking at experiments of science in labs, they're looking at the same thing, but they interpret it very differently. Even diametrically opposed. So the exact opposite. You're saying this is white, I say this is black. Because science and the scientist do not exist in a vacuum. They're not all alone with their science. They're within a culture, they're within a religion, they're within a society, there's pressures on them that make their thinking change. They exist in a real world of constantly changing ideas and beliefs. Much has changed in Pastor's time. Society is different, religion is different. What we know or believe we know about the world is different. How humanity sees its relationship to the world is different. And consequently, so is what humanity sees in science. This is evident in no field of science more than the study of life's origin. Most people cannot seem to simply disregard the question, cannot simply say, I do not know, as people might once have responded to a question about why lightning occurs or might now answer a question about the nature of dark matter. We may not know or claim to know the exact details of how life began, but we hold in our heads answers based on philosophy, religion, conjecture, even wishful thinking. We hold these answers because we have to, because the origin of life strikes at the very meaning of what it is to be alive. Scientists are no different. They often cling to their particular answer, even in the face of contradictory evidence, even when in cases like those of Sidney Fox and Charles Bastian, they spend a lot of time on those, their intransigence meant or means professional loss. A lot of the book is spent explaining how scientists were stubborn. They believed something. Then someone comes with an idea. Sometimes the person who comes with the idea is extremely stubborn. And they think their idea is revolutionary and it is a solution. And they are stubborn. And with time, they're proven completely wrong. And sometimes it's the one holding on to the idea that was stubborn. And the idea was good. And everybody around them says, oh, that idea is good. You better let go of your own theory. That one is better than yours. But they're too stubborn to see it. Sometimes those who were stubborn were right. Everybody was against them. And in the end, they won. And sometimes those who were stubborn were wrong. And so the, the, the whole book goes back and forth about these scientists. How sometimes it was the right call, the right thing to do to be convinced of your, of your new idea or your old idea, and sometimes that was not the right thing. And that's why they, they say that basically scientists are no different than the rest of human beings. They have good cognitive tools. They have all the tools they need to do good experiments. But it doesn't mean that they're always doing good experiments because there's more at stake. Okay, and I thought there was one more passage I wanted to read. Okay, that's the last one. Page 258. When or if an explanation to the problem of life's origin is found, a solution capable of withstanding all the rigors of scientific scrutiny, we might find that the real answer we have been looking for continues to remain elusive. That is because there has always been a bigger question looming over the search of life's origin. It is the reason the debate has engendered such strong emotions and visceral reactions, and why the questions or the question has led so many scientists to throw scientific caution to the wind. For as human beings have searched for the origin of life, what they often seem to have been searching for is the meaning of life. That, perhaps, is something that science alone will never be able to answer. And this is why they say in this book that a lot of the scientists are going beyond science. Because what they're really looking for is for the meaning. 
And all the ingredients coming together chemically, biologically, through outer space, it doesn't matter. All of this is not going to answer the question of why. Even if we were to answer how it came together, we're just answering how. The problem is that human beings want to know why. The why gives us the meaning to life. Why did this happen? Why did life become life? Why were these laws in this way? And some scientists say, don't answer, don't ask why, as we encountered. Whereas others, like these, they don't really say, ask that question or not. They just recognize that human beings are wired in a way to think always about the question of the meaning and the why. Okay? Okay, that's all we had for today. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد